Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart, and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. Today I want to fellowship with you regarding spiritual performance orientation. A life not in the grace of God, a life that's not in the Spirit and by the anointing of God, but a spiritual life where, kind of like the Pharisee, we, we have to earn favor with God, or at the least, show our loyalty to God. And in this message, I want to unpack for you a little bit, in a, in a, in a rather systematic way, how do we get into this ditch of spiritual depression? And it all starts out with this illusionary God and this illusionary standard this artificial spirituality that we create or that's imposed upon us, that we imagine, and then our relentless pursuit to, to live up to this illusionary standard of what we think God wants from us. This is uh, the ditch of spiritual performance, but especially pertaining to the person that fails in his performance to God. In our next episode, we're going to talk more about spiritual performance orientation, but we're going to talk about the man that actually succeeds in his working for God, in his pleasing God, the man that succeeds in living up to that standard of perfection and spiritual vitality and holiness, as he sees it at least. I want to ask you that as you listen to this message, may the Holy Spirit reveal to you in what ways have you really not fully yet believed into the finished and all-inclusive work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. If there's something in you that is chasing after this illusionary standard with God, I pray, may the Holy Spirit give you insight where, in a way, you have landed in a ditch. And may the Lord's grace pull you out of that ditch and get you back on the straight and the narrow. Watch out, beloved, for this ditch of spiritual performance. Before I sketch out for you just a couple of things how you and I bite into this deception, I want to remind you of Paul in the book of Galatians. Don't turn there, but I just want to mention this. In Galatians, Paul confronts a, a community of believers. They're called a church. We call them actually the ecclesia. It's a community of the redeemed. He introduced the cross, 
the Holy Spirit to them, and then they went to another gospel. And Paul says, I'm grieved that you're turning away from the gospel so soon. But in chapter 1, Paul says the following. He says, even if an angel comes and preaches a gospel version that I did not preach to you, then I pronounce a curse on that angel. Now, humans don't curse angels. Okay, hello, listen, listen. An angelic being is of another category of species. Is everybody with me? You know, if you wrestle with one of those, it's just going to smite you on the hip, and it's not going to go good for you. Men don't curse angelic beings, especially angelic beings from God. You mostly just say, amen, okay, when do we start? That's pretty much your reaction to an angelic being. Is everybody with me? And Paul dares to pronounce a curse. This is what he's basically saying. If God was to change his mind regarding the gospel and send another messenger to come and say, hey, uh, update on the gospel, it's now, you know, 2.1. You have the first covenant one, then the second covenant two point. If God should modify the gospel and send an angel and said, oh, we neglected to inform you. Paul says, I pronounce a curse on that angel. Come on, people, are you listening? That's how convinced he was that his version of the gospel was solid, stable, of God. And since the past 2,000 years, how many angelic beings have actually come and preached different versions of the gospel? Paul says, I pronounce a curse on that messenger. That's how sure he was of the revelation God gave him regarding the finished work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen! Now, I, I, I don't want to necessarily echo Paul's sentiment towards false messengers. But I want you to notice how strongly this man feels that the gospel he preached set people free. That he would even curse angels that bear a false testimony of the gospel or an alternative testimony of the gospel. Let's look at a couple of things that's just a little off, just a, a little bit, and lands you and I in a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. We all start with an imagination of what we think God is like. This picture of God is in my psyche. It's an image. It's, it's a visual. And this picture is influenced by, you know, my parents. It's influenced by teachers. It's influenced in the church community, let's say, that I grew up in. This picture of God, whether I believe in Him or not, is influenced by the books that I read. Uh, it's, it's influenced by the, the experiences of good, bad, and ugly. Um, this, listen carefully... This revelation I have of God is, for many of us, predicated upon my imagination, my intellect, my creativity. 
And this is pretty much describing a new ager. New agers, God is only as powerful and strong and vivid as their imagination is clever. You will never meet a new ager without a clever imagination. His spirituality is 100% predicated on his imagination. Be that as it may, I pretty much join in here too. As I grow up, we all form a mental picture of who we think God is. For better, for worse, for good, for ugly. And it's authenticated by Bible verses or just superstition and imagination. Either way, we all have an image of God in our psyche somewhere. Can you all follow with me? Okay. To complicate matters, not only do I have this image of God, but as I read the, the Bible, the book of God, so to speak, this picture of God is strengthened. But it's not strengthened according to the pure, holistic revelation of the Word of God. It's mostly strengthened because of all these influences. So I already have a vision of what I think God is like. So when I then read the Bible, it pretty much confirms my suspicion. All these influences, and of course my imagination has created a God. And so when I read the Bible, I read in part... I read selectively, and it pretty much confirms this picture of who God is. And that's where the trouble actually starts. I have a picture of who God is. I have the Word of God that I selectively read, but now things get actually a little bit more complicated. I, from the Word, now begin to interpret the character of God and that he wants these things from me. We call this law. I have this imaginary God. At times I even have a Bible verse to substantiate the superstitious imaginative God I've erected. And then with all these Bible verses and with all these experiences and these other people doing things, I erect a custom and a tradition and a checklist and a do and a don't list, all based upon what I think God wants. Is everybody with me? It's getting complicated. Uh, this whole issue of just loving God and let God make Himself known, that, that issue is not there. So predominantly... I live a life focusing now on these to-dos because of what I perceive God is like and what I imagine the Bible says. So I have this stronghold in my being. This is what God is like. Uh, this is what the Bible must be teaching. And this is what God wants from me. And these three strands are woven so tight, it's like an iron chain. And from this now, I set out to live the Christian life. So the first thing that's going to happen, because I have this checklist of what this God wants from me, 
The first thing I am going to do is obviously I'm going to develop a theology of the pleasing of this God. It's a pleasing theology. I am going to develop now a lifestyle, a, a road, a track, and I'm going to be walking this track to basically meet the demands of this God, this Bible, and these lists that He wants from me. And so my whole goal now is to please Him. I want to be a blessing to this God. None of us, by the way, create an image in our mind only to be at war with that image. We all create an image that we want to embrace and we want to aspire to. So now we have this image of God. We have this notion of what His Bible might be saying. We have this checklist. And now I'm going to do what I can to live up to the standard. And the subtle motivation here is I want to please Him. Okay, so we've created this theology of pleasing. We learn it from people. We learn it from the Bible. And I have this motivating factor. I want to please God. Then I start to now work for this God. I am going to now read, give, go, abstain. And you have plenty of verses actually to complement this particular notion. Faith without works is dead. If tree is known by its fruit. And he said unto them, Well done, good and faithful. So I've got plenty of verses to substantiate this notion that I want to be a blessing to my God. Okay, so I begin to work for Him. So I do these things. But the next step is I fail. In a minute we'll see the other man is going to actually succeed. But we're talking about spiritual failures, the negative side of things for now. So I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail this imaginary God I've created. I'm going to fail what His Word teaches me. And I'm going to fail these standards that He wants from me. And this is where things then get interesting. Two things are going to happen. Number one, guilt. And number two, shame. So I want to differentiate here for just a minute. Guilt. Guilt is basically the notion, I did something wrong. So we all end up in this strange dynamic called guilt. And in that guilt, we begin an introspection. Where did I miss it? Maybe I misunderstood it. Maybe I just didn't understand it. But basically the emphasis here in guilt is that I did something wrong. Now listen, this is not a guilt that is the Holy Spirit within you convicting you. This is a guilt that I cannot live up to the standard of this imaginary God and I can't keep the letter of the law 
or check the lists as I perceive it to be. So you feel guilty that you did not please. This is not the Holy Spirit at all um, convicting you. This is just a, this is, this is the spirit of, of Satan in a way that, that, that bogs you down. And the guilt is 100% um, that you fell short with your imaginary standard you've erected. So it's self-imposed and it's deceptive guilt, but basically it focuses on I did something wrong. So what then will happen is most of us will set out on a crusade to try to correct the wrong. That's when you make a vow. I will never. I will always. That's when you take up your Christian shield again and your sword again and you try to fight again. And as time will reveal, you're going to fail again. Then there's guilt. Oh, I failed God. And as a result, you're going to constantly try to figure out where did I get it wrong? Because after all, with God, everything must be right. Right? Right? Somehow we read into it that this is a religion of right versus wrong. So most of us will stay stuck in this tumble dryer just right here in this hamster wheel. But then sooner or later, the hamster wheel will kick you out and you'll land in this strange thing called shame. And in shame, you will no longer consider what did I do wrong, emphasis on doing. You will in shame begin to consider I am wrong. I am the problem. And uh, most of us do not feel ashamed of ourselves overnight. Uh, Kids run around naked. Remember all of us when we were babies? We did not care about not having shoes on our feet. We did not care about having um, chocolate stuck in our teeth or boogers in our nose and eyes. As kids, that that consciousness of shame is not there yet. Why? We've not failed enough yet. We've not been mocked enough yet. So kids are gregarious. They are free and unencumbered. And I remember I was a baby, probably like you. You run around naked all day long. And everybody laughs. It's cute. But you're not affected by it. You're not in shame. Does it make sense? But give it time. And give enough mockery, and just in time, you will get to this place where where many of us get to. I am wrong. And this is what we do in spirituality. If you get to this place of spiritual shame, you're in the pit of despair. And this is where so many of us, we, we, we tried to work for God. Like the Pharisee, I will show you, Lord, we fail again, but then we repent. We take a knee again, we go back to camp, we come back to legacy, we go to church, we raise our hands, we say the sinner's prayer again. Why? Because we're constantly correcting the wrong deeds. We change our friends, we change our college, we shut the internet down, we give away all our possessions. We're constantly trying to earn through doing the pleasure of God. But inevitably, you're going to fail. Again, you don't fail overnight. 
You've tried to pray for a year or two. You've got a hundred books on prayer. You can't quite pray. You try to witness. You can't quite witness. You, you try to give, but you, you love your money. You, you, you try to go to another country, but oh, sooner or later, there is the straw that breaks the camel's back. And then you land in this pit of despair called shame. Now, in shame, we get self-obsessed. We are so introspective. Why can I not live this life? Why am I such a loser? Why am I not brave? Why don't I have faith? And you begin to wallow in this victimized mentality. And you begin to, in a way, redefine your character. I'm probably just not worthy Maybe I wasn't meant to live this Christian life. Um, when will I ever? And then, of course, in shame, you begin to retreat. At least when you were still guilty, you would go to church, let's say. <laughs> you would try to wash cars. You would try to do penance. At least when you're in guilt, you're still trying to do something about it. Guilty people, they often say, oh God, I'm so sorry, forgive me for my sin. I cursed, I cussed, I, 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 and oh Lord, let's do this again. At least when you're in the guilty territory, I mean, you're still in a way, there's movement in your life. Once you get to the shame territory, things begin to shut down. That is, you land in this introspective, self-absorbed, condemning, I'm good for nothing. Maybe I'm not chosen. Maybe God doesn't love me. And you begin to find fault. And this is when you get into, for me, a crucial spiritual pit. And then there comes all the, uh, the ministers like me, for instance, that keep telling you, oh, you can do it. Oh, you can do better. Pull up yourselves by your bootstraps. Try a little harder. And then every now and again, the shameful person might even climb out of shame back to works. And it's not long before they just crash and burn again. And every good message becomes just a, a, a dagger in their soul. Every inspiration becomes like a dagger that hurts and it just cuts. And their distortion of God is amplified as the distortion of their soul is amplified. And these types of Christians, listen to me, I'm not a psychologist but I've studied human behavior for quite some time. They lapse into this thing that I don't have a better word, but just spiritual depression that has nothing to do with biological depression. In biology, beloved, we, we're not all dapper. We're all flawed in our biology somewhere, some way. And in your biology, you need to do whatever is prescribed or counseled to be better in your biology. And listen to me, for those of you who take, let's say, medicine, there is no shame to aiding your biology. Let me explain. I do not feel one bit less a human because I have to wear glasses to help me see better. What is this? This is an aid to my eyes getting weaker as I grow older. 
There are a couple of Christians out there that would say to me, Francois, you just don't have enough faith. You probably sinned. That's why your eyesight is slowly, you can't read so well anymore. There's some Christians who think that because they're biologically weaker and they take medicine like I take glasses, they think they are somehow grieving God. That is a misrepresentation. Um, why do you eat food three times a day? Is it not aid for you, humanity? Oh, no, but we should live by the bread of God alone. No. You drink water. Why? To aid your humanity. Why do you guys take vitamins? Why do I wear glasses? It's all a supplement to my humanity. I believe you're a human and you need to do what you need to do to keep your humanity going without getting into ditches and bondages. And there is a difference. But spiritually, here is the nightmare, this ditch of spiritual depression. And here is the root of spiritual depression. Spiritual. I've tried so hard to please God, to do all the good things that I perceive He wants from me, to live up to a that-a-boy status with God. And what basically happens here is that I am ashamed that I am so ill-willed, ashamed that I'm not so disciplined. And you begin to lapse into this depression where you take daggers and you stab yourself and you loathe yourself. And it's this whole thing then that develops within spiritual people. They get this victimized mentality. They believe then God is out to get them. They believe that to live this Christian life is an impossibility. And so they, they, their whole system shuts down. Why? It's based on a false premise of who God is, an incomplete understanding of the economy of God, and a checklist created by the traditions of man. So this spiritual depression creates... Fear in people before God. Fear, that is, they don't want to talk to God. They can't sing to God. They can't testify of God. Actually, I can't say anything good about this illusionary God. If you knew the real God, you will not be able to shut up. But you can't testify to an illusion. So what will happen is, in our shame, we do what Adam and Eve did in the garden. We would hide from God. Not only are we guilty for what we did wrong, but we're ashamed that we're butt naked. I am wrong. So the inevitable result of guilt and shame is fear. Fear. So we're in hiding. We, we run. We're then timid before God. So when you're afraid of God, you can't ask in faith. So when you can't ask in faith, God will give you nothing. And people stay in this quicksand and they can't climb out of it because fear does not provoke faith. Fear constantly like hopes for a little bit of mercy, but fear is not bold faith in God. Fear is constantly like putting a hand over your head thinking God's about to smite you. Why? You have this illusion of who God is again. And fear grips almost all of us. 
We're all afraid of God and we're afraid of the judgment. What? The judgment on what I did and the judgment of who I am. So we are in this fear. This fear then makes you insecure. <laughs> and then because I'm insecure, I go to the next thing. I begin to live a lie. I cannot be honest and forthcoming. So I live a lie of pretentiousness. And again, this is the spirituality that many of us are sort of locked into. I'm guilty for doing wrong. I'm ashamed of who I am. I get depressed. I feel so afraid of God. And in my fear, I, I can't approach God. So we sink into insecurity. And listen, the fruit of insecurity is lies. People who are insecure have to lie. You have to pretend. You have to fake it. <laughs> the more you fake it, and the more you lie, the more you become confused about the truth. Insecurity begets lying. And the more you lie, the more distorted the truth becomes, the more confused you are. The more confused you are, the more unstable you become. The more unstable you become, the more double-minded you become. And this brings you to the last thing in my little scenario here of creating an illusionary God. Double-mindedness is when uh, you've utterly been gained by Satan. It all began with an illusionary God and an illusionary economy of what you think it's about and what people would say and you create these checklists and then you, you fail and you try harder and then you're guilty and then you're into shame and you're into depression and oh, then you fear and you hide and you're insecure and then you lie and then you make pretend and then the, the truth gets all confusing. You'll see people who are not in the reality of God are in confusion. Again, I might almost say there's only two types of Christians, the confused ones and the ones that are sober-minded. And they land in this confusion and in this double-mindedness. One day you're like this and then the one day you're like that. And you'll see double-minded Christians, they become whatever the person with the current persuasion has it best. This church says it best, so I'll join here. Or this truth says it best. And so they are all over the place. A double-minded person is like a ping-pong ball. And you'll see a new church open, he's there. And a new man, he's there. A new book, and he's here. And all in the way of lying and make-pretending, but they're trying to get over the shame thing. They're trying to work up brownie points with God. And ay 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 Become double-minded. One day believe God loves me, He loves me not. That syndrome I see every single day. But here is the, the danger zone where it lands us. And this is really the, the fruit of works-based spirituality. 
is an altogether reinterpretation of who God is. You begin to reinterpret God. Reinterpret the Word. Reinterpret what He wants from me. And then you set out on that crusade and you try again. You work at it again, etc., etc. And you just go through this tumble machine of just landing you where? In a place of what we might call a false God. And it's the thing God had problems with in the Old Testament. For instance, just the book of Deuteronomy has more references to not creating a false God, an other God, an idol. It appears to me that in the Old Testament, God revealed Himself to show the real God. But people kept creating the illusion of God and what they think He wants. And this is what happens even in our modern Christian culture, if you will. We have an idea of what we think. And then my works is within the paradigm of that idea. And all the while, we're outside of the reality of the kingdom of the heavens. So this whole idea then that we have this illusionary God, you have to scrap it all together and be confronted the way that the Pharisees were confronted with a whole new revelation of who God really is. Remember, they had the revelation of God. Then the baptizer comes, he says, repent. Jesus comes, he says, no, walk away. And it was an affront to their lifestyle. As much as it is often an affront to you and I's lifestyle, because why? We have this illusionary version of God. And what makes it so bad is that we have it full of Bible verses, disjointed, selected, compartmentalized Bible verses. And because we believe the Bible is an authoritative book, therefore we stamp that illusionary God with our authority, our approval, yep, because it's in the Bible, and then we set out on this journey and we crash and we burn and we wonder why. That we dust ourselves up, I'm going to please this illusionary God and we try again 